Dear congregation, sometimes the question is asked, what should be preached? And of course, the most basic and fundamental answer is the word of God, preach the word. But more specifically, and sometimes the answer is given, a rich Christ and a poor sinner. A rich Christ and a poor sinner. And in a sense, that is what we have been hearing in the last times. We have listened to the scriptural instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism. Lord says two through four has, have addressed our own spiritual poverty and that we are indeed sinners. And Lord says five and six have set before us a rich Christ. But there's one other element which is so important, and that is, now how does that rich Christ and how do those poor sinners come together? That's also such an important question, isn't it? Because if we just hear about a rich Christ and a poor sinner, then either we can be left with a presumption, well, then we must all be saved, or we are left with a dead orthodoxy, yes, he's a rich Christ, and yes, uh, sinners are poor, but, but the question is now how do we come together and how do we as poor sinners come to know this rich Christ so that we may confess what we heard last Lord's Day evening, I'm a poor sinner and nothing at all and Jesus Christ is my all in all. And that's where we come to Lord's Day 7. And so I invite you to turn with me to to Lord's Day 7, on page 38 in the back of your Psalters. They're based on the passages we read and many other passages of the Word of God. We confess in Lord's Day 7, Are all men then, as they perished in Adam, saved by Christ? No, only those who are engrafted into him and receive all his benefits by a true faith. What is true faith? True faith is not only a certain knowledge whereby I hold for truth all that God has revealed to us in his word, but also an assured confidence which the Holy Ghost works by the gospel in my heart, that not only to others, but to me also remission of sin, everlasting righteousness, and salvation are freely given by God, merely of grace, only for the sake of Christ's benefits. What is then necessary for a Christian to believe? All things promised us in the gospel, which the articles of our Catholic, undoubted Christian faith briefly teach us. What are these articles? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost. I believe in holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let us listen then prayerfully this morning to the theme, True Saving Faith in God. True Saving Faith in God. First, urgently needed, second, wholeheartedly exercised, and third, well-founded. True saving faith in God, urgently needed, wholeheartedly exercised, and well-founded on the word. First then, this true faith is urgently needed. 
And it's urgently needed, first of all, because not all are saved. Question 20 asks, are then are all men then, as they perished in Adam, saved by Christ? And the answer is no. In a poll last year in America, around close to three quarters, 74% of Americans said they believed there was a heaven. And around 62% of Americans believed there is a hell. Many people still believe there is a hell, meaning not everyone is saved. But we don't have to go by polls and the opinions of men. It's very clear from the Word of God. If anyone made that clear, it was Christ Himself in the Gospels that not everyone will be saved and go to heaven. He taught that in his parables. Children, can you think of parables which the Lord Jesus taught to show that not everyone will go to heaven? Do you remember the parable of the good fish and the bad fish? There was that net and there was the the good fish which were taken and the the bad fish which were thrown out. Or you can think of that that parable of the ten virgins and there was five who were wise and five who were foolish and the five wise went in and the five foolish were shut out. You think of another place where the Lord Jesus teaches. Remember the broad and the narrow way? Many are going to destruction and there is also that, that narrow way that leads to life. the Lord Jesus makes so clear that some will be saved as a wonder of God's grace and others will perish as to the glory of God's justice. What a reality that is. We can so easily say, no, not everyone is saved. We don't believe in universalism that in the end everyone will be in heaven. Do we realize what that means? We are heading to that place that we have read of in Psalm 9. God hath prepared his throne for judgment and will judge the world in righteousness. And right now, there are multitudes of people that are heading for that throne to hear the judge say, condemned, damned to eternal death. There are ones who are rich or poor. There are ones in in Africa and in, in apartment buildings in China and ones who are here in Kalamazoo who are heading for hell. And those going to hell are not just outside the walls of the church, but they are even inside the walls of the church. Those parables of the Lord Jesus show that they are mingled together. There are those those that good wheat and there are those tares which are mixed together in the same field. There are the five wise and the five foolish virgins which are right there in the same uh, gathering awaiting the bridegroom. The Lord Jesus said, many will say in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name done wonderful things? And he will say, I did not, I do not know you, depart from me. And that's why, as preachers, we cannot assume that everyone in church is saved. And and as teachers, we cannot assume that all the children are saved. And as parents, we cannot just take for granted that our children are saved. That's why we so urgently need to be saved and can't take it for granted. And to be saved, we need a bond with the Savior. I mentioned that many people believe there is a hell or, and there is a heaven. And almost all of the people in America who believe there is a heaven say there is a good chance that they will go to heaven. And even most of those who believed uh, that there is a heaven said that they believe that all 
religions could lead to eternal life. But we confess here, are all then saved? No, only those who are engrafted into Christ. And the Heidelberg Catechism then uses the, the illustration of a tree. Engraft is what you do when you take a branch or off of one tree, you cut it off, and you engraft it into another tree so that it becomes part of that other tree. To be engrafted into Christ means that by nature we belong to another tree, and that tree is called Adam. Really, God only sees two trees. He sees Adam and he sees Christ. And that tree, Adam, on which, to which we belong by nature, is a tree that is poisoned. It doesn't produce anything good. It's dead. And it has this mark. Have you ever, I don't know if they do that here, but in Canada anyway, you sometimes walk, drive down the road and you see a, a tree with a spot of paint on it. And that's a mark. This tree has to be cut down. That's Adam. That's what we are by nature. In Adam all die, 1 Corinthians 15 says. But what is it to be saved? It's to be God to cut you off Adam as a little tree, a little branch, and to engraft you into Christ so that you belong to Christ. And Christ is that living tree. Christ is that flourishing tree. He is the one who says, I am the life. He lives, and there is no mark that says, cut this tree down with all the branches. No, he is the one who died and who now lives and who will ever live, and all those who are engrafted into him will live forever. What a contrast. It's a contrast of Romans 5, isn't it? Of the first Adam and that second Adam. In the first Adam, there's death. In the second Adam, there's life. In the first Adam, there's only sin. And in the second Adam, there's righteousness. Who then are saved? Those who are engrafted. Those who are united to Jesus Christ. Those who belong to Jesus Christ. Romans 5 makes that so very clear. Because either he deals with us through Adam or he deals with us through Christ. Well, here's the question. How do we belong to Christ? This is a work of God. This is God engrafting. This is his sovereign grace. But we still ask, how does he work this? And how do we become one with Christ? And the answer is by faith. Who are saved? Those who are engrafted into Christ and receive all his benefits by a true faith. And that is what Scripture makes so abundantly clear, doesn't it? You think of the, the texts that are cited in the Heidelberg Catechism. It speaks, it cites there Mark 16, verse 16. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. For John, six, or John 3, verse 36, he that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Why has God given us his word? We read it in John 20, didn't we? These are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. That's why we have the word. That's why God gives it to us. That we might believe in Jesus Christ and believing be saved and have life in him. The way to be saved is not by simply trying to be good. Sometimes 
Children can think that. Who are saved? People who are good. How are you saved? By being good. No, you're not saved by being good. You're only saved by trusting in the Savior who saves from sin. And also, even as adults, we can still have this idea that if I try and do my best and I try to, to, to do what God says and if I come to church and if I pray and if I read and if I... Then, or we can think if I, I'm sorry enough about my sin and if I really resolve to be different and if I... It's not what we do. It will ever save us. It's only a Savior who saves, and he saves those who believe in him. And that's why it becomes so essential to know, what is it then to believe in him, right? That's why it's so essential to have true faith. That's why the catechism emphasizes what is true faith. Because you can't be content with a false faith. You can't be content with what you think is faith, but is not really faith that saves and unites to Christ. What is true faith? You can think that being a believer is just about living a certain way and following a certain code of conduct, but faith that is not what is at the heart of true faith. We can think faith is just an emotional response to a message about Christ that you remember having been moved under, under a sermon and having become emotional hearing of the sufferings of Christ or that something struck you in a powerful way. True faith is more than emotions. We can think faith is holding to the truth of the word of God and believing a set of doctrines, but again, faith is more than believing with your mind a set of doctrines. We can even think that faith is believing that you are saved and knowing that you are saved. But as I mentioned already, in America, of all those who believe in that there is a heaven, almost all of them believe that they will go there. Faith must be more than thinking you are saved and believing that you are saved. What is true faith? It's our second point. True saving faith is wholeheartedly exercised. Faith is a matter of the heart, the whole heart. Our heart, which is the center of our being, and in our heart, when the Bible speaks of our heart, then, then it's speaking of where we think and where we desire and where we will things. It involves our mind and our affections and our will. True faith is, is a matter of the whole of the core of our being. That's why Romans 10 says, the word is nigh thee even in thy mouth and in thy heart, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness. That's why we confess here that faith is, is worked in our hearts. What is there in our heart when we truly believe? There is this certain or sure knowledge and an assured confidence. If you boil down that answer, 21, you come to that. True faith is a certain knowledge and a sure, assured confidence. Certain knowledge and assured confidence. And these two things are are bound together and you can't separate them and you can't have one without the other. They're bound together in what true faith is. That's what we find in Psalm 9 verse 10. They that know thy name shall put their trust in thee, have that confidence in thee. 
To know his name is to have that trust in him. And to trust in him truly is bound up in knowing his name. And yet as we we reflect on them, we have to deal with them one by one, don't we? And we begin with first that certain knowledge whereby I hold for truth all that God has revealed to us in his word. It's to know his name. It's to know what he reveals of himself in his word because his name is his revelation of who he is. And where do we learn his name? It's in his word, in his whole word because it's all the revelation of who God is and what he's done and what he does and what he will do. Faith involves knowing. It's so important. Today, there's a tendency to, to set aside all that, all that theology and all that doctrine and all that learning and all that memorization of what we need to know. Does it matter so matter much what we know? After all, as long as we, we feel and as long as we do, does knowing matter? But why has God given us his word? Why does he speak to us with words in language that we can understand, it's so that we would know, know this God. That's why we, it's such a privilege that we have that word and that we have ex, it expounded to us Lord's Day by Lord's Day and that you, you have also this morning, you're starting the Sunday school so that you children would learn that word of God and what God tells you in that word. It's such a privilege, such a mercy because we must know. There's no faith apart from knowing. Has the word of God led you to know the name of God? Or to, as the catechism puts it, hold for true all that God has revealed in his word. This knowledge of faith doesn't simply say, I know the Bible says this and says that. And I've taken Bible class at school and I can give the right answer to the, an- the questions that are asked about the Bible. And yes, I don't know everything, but I know quite a lot. And I know the important things. No, f- the knowledge of faith holds these things for true. That what God says about himself is true, is real. And what God says about me is true, it's real. And what God says about Christ is true, is real. And what God calls me to be and to do is true, is real. Faith says amen to the whole word of God. It's faithful and true. That's faith. Maybe that sounds so simple. If I were to ask you this morning, is the Bible true? I think, I hope, everybody would say the Bible is true. Yes. And if someone would come and start preaching, you know, the the Bible is not all really true. Like Genesis 1 1 through 3, that's not really, really true. That's just a nice story. And, And the miracles, no, they didn't really happen. That's not really true. If someone would start preaching that from the pulpit, you would be upset or not. Because you say the Bible is true. Yes, that's good. But the real test of whether you believe it's true is what effect it has upon you. If tonight you're sleeping and through the fog of your sleep you start to hear a voice and there's someone outside your window calling, fire, fire, your house is on fire. What's the proof of whether you you, you believe it's true? You say, yes, thank you for telling me. And you go off to sleep. You said, yes, I, thank you for telling me. You say, yeah, it's true. You go off to sleep. Do you really believe it's true? 
What's a test of whether you believe it's true? You jump out of bed and you flee the house. What's a test of whether you believe the warnings of God are true? It's not whether you come to church and say, yes, we need to hear the warnings of God. And yes, we need to hear that there is a reality of hell and that sin must be punished. That's not the proof that you believe it's true. The proof you believe it's true is if you and I flee the wrath to come. And if we don't flee the wrath of God to come, then we're treating that warning as a fable and as a, as a lie. Do we hold it for true? And when Christ comes to us and all the fullness of his grace, what's the test of whether we believe it's true that he is indeed the Savior? That we trust him to save a sinner like me or not? You have cancer, a terrible cancer. It's giving you terrible pain. And someone comes and he says, I know a doctor who has a cure for your cancer and relief for your pain. And you say, yes, that's so nice. That's wonderful news. But you live on without asking that doctor to heal you. Do you really believe that message is true or do you just think it's too good to be true and live on? What is the test of whether we believe the gospel is true? We're so affected by that gospel that we cannot but flee to that Savior for salvation. The test of whether we hold it for true, whether we know the reality of it as true, is that it affects us because it's real. We can go on for so many other aspects of the word of God. But the key here is that faith holds all that God has revealed for true. When he comes with his commands also, that you say, yes, they are true. Yes, they are good because he says they're good. He says they're perfect. And that's why sin is so terrible to you. And that's why holiness is so desirable to you and that you want to keep his law. Can you say before the face of God this morning, I hold for truth all that thou hast revealed in thy word. That you've said amen to it all. That you know it. 1 Corinthians 2 says, The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. But God reveals them by his Spirit. God gives a knowledge of the realities of what he, the reality of what he reveals in the word of God so that you don't just say it's true. You don't just think, well, I, I, I believe it's true, but it, it's real to you. This is a certain knowledge. This is an unshakable knowledge. Faith is no leap in the dark. Faith is no I hope it's true. Faith is no speculation. It's sure. And what is it sure of? It's sure of the word of God. Faith isn't about what I think and I want and I feel the truth is or should be. But it's certain. God has spoken, and his word is truth. You see the truth as you've never seen it before, and you bow before the, the majesty of that word of God. You can question whether your faith is true. Satan may whisper also in your mind that those, those, that word is just fables, but deep down you know one thing. His word is true. And that leads to that second activity. And that is an assured confidence, which the Holy Spirit works by the gospel in my heart. 
that not only to others but to me also remission of sin, everlasting righteousness and salvation are freely given by God, merely of grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. Knowledge and confidence go together exactly because of who God is. You know, there's some people, the more you get to know them, the less you trust them. Because they're not faithful. Because they're not consistent. Because they're not trustworthy. But how different God is. The more you know him, the more you're convinced that he is utterly trustworthy and that what he says he does and who he declares himself to be, he is. He's not a man that he can lie, nor the son of man that he repents. Hath he spoken, and shall he not do it? To know him is to trust him, and not to trust him is because you don't know him. So utterly faithful. It's to have this assured confidence. Psalm 9 again, they that know thy name will put their trust in thee, for thou, Lord, hast not forsaken them that seek thee. He's so trustworthy. Faith is putting all confidence in him. And that means everything is out of your hands. That means you're not resting on anything of yourself or anything around you, but only, only him. It's not just saying I trust, but it's actually trusting. Well, there's the, the story told of, or the account of the tightrope walker who went over the Niagara Falls in the 1850s cable, two inches thick, all the way over. There's all the spray and all the foam. And he goes over. And he goes over. And he takes a wheelbarrow and he goes over. And there's crowds watching, crowds amazed. And he comes and he says, you believe I can take a person in this wheelbarrow across the falls on the rope They say, you can, you can do it. And he asks, who will go in the wheelbarrow? And it's silent. Do we have confidence in this Christ? You see, when they were in the wheelbarrow, they're totally dependent on that man to bring them safely across. Faith is total dependence and trusting your life, your soul, your eternity into the hands of another, of none less than Jesus Christ. And you're done with yourself. It's only him. But congregation, Christ is no tightrope walker who may have gone successfully over a rope once or twice or 10 times or 20 times and the hundredth time might yet fail. Christ is the one who is utterly faithful, who is who he says he is and does what he says he does. And spirit-worked faith knows he is indeed the Savior in such a way that it trusts, has that confidence in him that commits everything, everything to him and him alone. How do you treat Christ? Is it like those crowds who say, yes, he can but not me. Or have you come to have this confidence in him, knowing that he is trustworthy,
To go back to Psalm 9, the verse before, it says, The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. That's his declaration of what he will be. And that's why verse 10 ends, Thou, Lord, hast not forsaken them that seek thee. He never has forsaken the soul that's cried out unto him for mercy and grace. And he is and he will be that refuge. This is who he is, and faith embraces that message, and faith has confidence in this God. The Catechism puts it this way, that he is the one who freely grants remission of sin, everlasting righteousness, and salvation. And I know that can also lead to a certain struggle. How can I trust that he does indeed give me these things. Maybe he isn't giving me these things. But that giving of God is in the first place in a sense in which he offers these things. Think of Revelation 3. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich. Give the riches of salvation. I counsel thee to buy of me white raiment that thou mayest be clothed and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear to give that everlasting righteousness and anoint thine eyes with eyesalve that thou mayest see. He is the one who stretches out his hands in the word of God offering these things to give these things. And when you say, but who am I? And would he be offering these things to me this morning? Then think of who he stretched out his hands to give these things to. In Revelation 3, it was to Laodicea, that that church which was lukewarm, that church which was in danger of being spewed out of his mouth, that church which thought it was rich and increased with goods and did not know that it was poor and blind and miserable and naked. It was so blind, so proud. And it was about to be spewed out of his mouth. And yet Christ comes to them and he says, I counsel thee. And so Christ comes to anyone here this morning. However you have been and whatever wrong is within you. One mass of sin. One mass of ignorance and unbelief perhaps. But he says, I counsel thee to buy of me. Gold, raiment, eyes have. That you may see, may be rich may be covered. This is the Christ who comes. Comes offering. Comes with gifts to give. So personally, as you sit under the preaching, oh, what a wonder when it breaks through and you see and you realize he's not just speaking to others, but he's speaking to me. Me, in all my sin and unworthiness, he's speaking to me. It's not just for others, but for me also. When he says, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And he that hath no money, let him come and buy without money and without price. And how much more amazing when he so convinces you that yes, he means you, when he comes with these gifts to give them away. How much more amazing when through that you, you then receive those gifts, when he, he gives them to you in such a way that they become yours as you're stretching out your hands for these things with those empty hands of faith. And he gives them. This is his grace. This is what he lives to do. This is what he delights to do. To give remission or forgiveness of sins. Isn't that one of our most basic needs? To be forgiven. We're born a mass of sin and guilt. And he is the one who forgives freely, merely of grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. It's a free gift that has been secured by Christ and the work that he has done upon the cross as Jesus Christ the righteous, taking the place of those who deserve to die, taking that death sentence upon 
upon himself so that he may give pardon to those who confess, Lord, in thy judgments thou art just, speechless I thy mercy trust. This is his gift that he gives for you this morning who confess, Lord, I have nothing to give thee but my sin. He says, oh, I have a pardon to give you, free and full, purchased by Christ. And he also gives an everlasting righteousness, means you don't have it, means you'll never be able to weave that robe of righteousness for your own self, but he has woven it already in Christ and he gives it freely so that you may stand before God as righteous. And he gives salvation, a full salvation that takes into account our every need, our every problem, our every lack. And it covers it all because it's his salvation. And therefore it's full. A full salvation also that he delivers from the power of sin and from the presence of sin. And it's a beginning here and it will be perfected one day. This is the salvation he gives merely of grace. And faith clings to those words, grace. Lord, I have nothing to merit. The devil accuses me, my conscience accuses me, my own heart condemns me. But greater than my heart, greater than my conscience, greater than the devil is the word of God which is faithful and true, is the Savior who is faithful and true. My hope is in thy words. It's faith. Maybe some of us still find faith such a difficult topic. How do I come to believe in this way? I know I need a savior. But how to believe in him and have his salvation and, and how to live out of him? What shall I tell you? Shall I give you a five-step process? Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. And then you begin as an unbeliever and you end as a believer. And then you'll become all focused on me doing this and me doing that and me doing that and me doing that. And then hopefully in that way I'll be a believer. And you'll be focused on yourself and you'll end with yourself and you'll get no further than yourself. Faith is a gift of God. And that's not a discouragement. That is such an encouragement. Encouragement for one who's run stuck trying to believe and it doesn't seem to work. Faith is a gift of God. Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. You struggle and ask, how can I believe? Faith isn't just something you, you, you figure out on your own. This is something that God works by his Holy Spirit. Initially, this is a grace that he revives time and again and brings into exercise time and again. And that's why you may also confess before him all your unbelief. You may confess before him all your ignorance of him. You may confess before him all your lack of trust in him. And you may look to him with all that's wrong. Because what is faith? It's renouncing all our own efforts and sinking our whole case upon this triune God, the Christ who merited salvation, the Father who gives salvation, the Holy Spirit who works it out. And he, this is the key. He does so by the gospel. And then to have faith, we must turn our attention away from our own hearts and trying to pump things up in our own hearts. And we must be all focused upon the object of faith, on the gospel of Christ, which is the power of God unto salvation. Because the eye of faith doesn't analyze itself and look at itself. It looks away from itself to Christ in the gospel. The foundation of faith is not me, but it's, it's, it's him and his word. And therefore, in the midst of those struggles, how to believe, oh, let all your focus be on the object of faith, 
on the word which is so faithful, on the Christ who is so faithful. And that's our final point, that this faith is well-founded. The issue is not, in the first place, am I convinced that I am saved? Being convinced you're saved all on its own doesn't save you any more than a beggar being convinced that he's a prince makes him a prince. The question is this, do we have a foundation? Foundation for that faith. And we saw already that faith is holding for true all that God has revealed in his word. What then is necessary for a Christian to believe? Question 22. All things promised us in the gospel, which the articles of our Catholic undoubted Christian faith briefly teach us. We are to believe, it says, everything promised us in the gospel. That's a lot, isn't it? Maybe you say, isn't that too much to ask? To believe all that's promised in the gospel? Do we have to know everything that's promised in the gospel? And have that deliberate and conscious trust in God for everything he has promised. A child who doesn't have the whole Bible memorized, who doesn't know all the promises of God in the, in the Bible, but knows that central promise that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And that child whose only plea and only hope is in this Jesus Christ has the faith that's spoken of here because it's a faith that God will do what he has promised and trust him to do it. Notice here, how the emphasis is on the promise of the gospel because the gospel is promise. It's the declaration and revelation of what God promises to do and has done. The whole gospel is one sparkling diamond of promise. And you can turn it and there's so many different facets of that gospel promise but it's all the promise of a gracious God of salvation. And see, that's, that's faith. Faith, you're done with I will. I am, I have. You're done with it. Your only hope, only confidence is his I will, I am, I have, I give. There's the focus, and there's the foundation, the surety, the certainty, what he declares. And really, the Apostles' Creed is a summary of all that God promises. That's why every morning we hear the claim of God's law upon us, which says, do. And in the afternoon, we hear the summary of the gospel, where God says, I will. And that faith says amen to that promise of God and says, I believe in God the Father and in Jesus Christ and in the Holy Spirit. Do you listen to the Apostles' Creed in that way as a summary of the gospel that comes and meets you where you are? So that when you come into church and you feel so helpless and so weak, and you hear of God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and your eyes are directed away to him again. The one who never grows weary, never faints, and says, why do you say your way is from the Lord? Hast thou not known? Hast thou not heard? That the creator of the ends of the earth fainteth not, neither is weary. And that it stirs up that trust in him. And when you come into church and you, and your conscience is accusing you and you hear once again, I believe the forgiveness of sins and you hear it as a declaration of God himself, with thee there is forgiveness. It's a promise to cling to. 
the midst of whatever you feel. When you come to church and you're grieving and you're concerned or or you're, you're pained because of the loss of a loved one, who died in Christ, and you confess that, I believe the resurrection of the dead. What a promise that is and what a hope that gives. That's just a few examples, but you could go through it all. But it's, it's so full of the grace of God. And can we do with anything less than this triune God and all he promises and all he is and does? All salvation is in the way of God fulfilling his word of promise. And that's what makes it so easy. For those for whom it's impossible. Because when it's impossible from our side, we're done trying to add anything. And we're left with a God who does it all. And faith confesses he does it all and rests on his word of promise. Is that your only hope and your only trust? Nothing of you, only him. Martin Luther, he says, the only comfort of faith is that it knows that God's word does not lie nor deceive. And so it trusts, and so it seeks God to fulfill his own word. And that's why that call comes, that Israel hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy. Amen. O Lord God, we pray to thee, and we thank thee that thou art faithful and true and also that thy word is living and powerful, and that through thy word, blessed by thy spirit, thou dost overcome all unbelief and doubt and suspicion of thee, and of thinking it is only for others and not for us, and that thou dost work this faith and maintain this faith and strengthen this faith, which is all focused upon thee and thy word of promise. O Lord God, we pray to be such a God among among us, young and old, and all of us, that we would be convinced in our heart of hearts of the truth of what thou dost reveal, and that we would have confidence in thee and trust that what thou hast promised thou art able to perform and faithful to perform for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ and merely of grace. Keep us, Lord, further in this day. Gather us together again in this evening and bless us out of the fullness of grace that is in Christ Jesus. We ask it in his name alone. Amen.